Welcome to this week's podcast. My name is Mickey Badlamenti, and I'm the discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Due to the coronavirus pandemic, we've modified our church schedule to help keep people safe. We currently offer on-site Sunday morning services at 9 and 11 a.m. with limited capacity, and we ask that you register ahead of time. Please visit www.rockpoint.org slash register before you join in person. That way we can save your seat. And we also live stream the 11 a.m. service on our YouTube channel. You can always find Rock Point on Facebook or visit the website for more information, including important schedule updates. And while COVID may have affected how we do church, it cannot diminish our efforts together to be the church. We look forward to connecting with you. Enjoy the podcast. We've been in a series entitled Deep Calling, Count the Cost. We're going to be walking this all the way up to Easter. And the series is entitled Deep Calling. Today is called Count the Cost. And um, I want to read to you from Luke chapter 6. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and he chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. If you'll join with me in prayer before we begin here. Father, first of all, we thank you as to how we've endured as a church through this time. Lord, um, we thank you for the many ways you have provided. And today, we just would recognize those tithes and offerings, whether online or whether in person here today. We give these things to you freely, generously, because you've given freely and generously to us. We ask that uh, you would bless both the gift and the giver. But even more significant than that, Lord, that this morning you would speak to our hearts and our minds, that there would be something in the unveiling of your word through the power of your Holy Spirit that would transform our thinking and our actions going forward from this day, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Back in the 90s or so, there was a phenomenon that had been building for several years of time that swept broadly through the Christian community. It was a series of church leadership conferences It borrowed heavily from corporate America, and um, it was transformational in many regards. Most pastors up until that time had identified, over 90% of them had identified uh, as their primary gift um, teaching or, or helps or compassion or administration or something else. Only seven or so percent had identified leadership as such. Over 85% of the churches in America still to this day are under 100 people or around approximately 100 people. The advent of the mega churches began to build as people took hold of some of these methodologies and applied them. And while there's certainly something that we can learn from such methods, there is a stark difference between corporate America and leadership within the church. I was drawn to some of this early on, I'll be honest. Uh, from the time I was small, my primary gifting was in the area of leadership. It wasn't something I strove for. It was just something that I naturally found myself engaging in. Later, teaching became something that became conscious to me as well. 
So for myself and many of us, we sought out some of these conferences, we engaged, and we, we borrowed some great material. But slowly something began to soak into the mainstream of the church, capital C. Pastors began to perceive themselves as business people and as CEOs and not as pastors. You would go to a church conference and um, four speakers would be from corporate America and only one or two would be pastors. And oftentimes those corporate America leaders were not even uh, Christians. In fact, several of them were quite hostile to Christianity. But you were there to glean from their leadership concepts and abilities. About 14, 15 years ago, uh, we were at such a conference when um, there was a teaching that was preceded by a drama. And in that drama, something was acted out as a pastor who was struggling with a major decision that when it was finalized and that session was over, I pulled our team out and I said, that was absolutely not biblical. And from that point on, we've been very cautious of what degree we have uh, taken some of these things in. John Piper, a pastor, wrote actually a book in response to this entitled, Brothers, We Are Not Professionals. This may be a platform, but it is never a stage. You are not an audience. You are a congregation. And whether you are a leader or a teacher or carry some other gifting, which all of us have of some type or another, we are all together called to be disciples. As we look into the patch of Scripture, Jesus is pulled off to pray. He's praying because he's about to make a decision on who he's going to choose for leadership for the foundation of the church. Arguably the most significant decision that he was going to make. And he didn't borrow from corporate America, he drew deep into his father, and he drew deep into an understanding of the heart of men. Our views are very different from his views. I have a couple of things I came across recently, little stickers. I never wanted them for the stickers, but I thought the sayings on them always caught me a little bit. And I happened to come across some I found from years back. And this one sums it up. It says, to err is human. To blame it on someone else shows management potential. He pulls together 12 men after this night of prayer. And he uses these guys as the baseline for the church. Now, these guys become significant in the view of the world. In fact, there are many paintings. One of the most famous one, of course, would be Da Vinci's The Last Supper where all the guys are gathered. They became impacting all of Western civilization, not only in their ideas and their concepts that they were taught by Christ, but even in their very names. They're the most popular names. Many of the disciples' names are actually the most popular names even today in Western civilization. Peter, John, Paul, Ringo, 
they made an impact. Jesus calls them out from a gathering of other disciples, and this becomes the baseline of the church. The very name church means, or is drawn from the term ecclesia. And the term ecclesia means the called out ones. So this is who not only they were as the foundation, but also who we are supposed to be as followers of Christ. He chose 12 of his disciples to become apostles. What's the difference between an apostle and a disciple? And why 12? Well, he chose 12 because the original chosen people of Israel were formed around 12 tribes, 12 uh, patriarchs. He's now establishing a new community of believers and he goes by the base, same system and chooses 12 disciples to form the new foundation of a new community of people called out to follow God. The difference between apostle and disciple. A disciple is a student, one who learns from a teacher. An apostle is sent to deliver those teachings to other people. The term apostle means messenger. He who is sent an apostle is an ambassador sent to deliver or spread those teachings to others. We can say that, that all apostles were, in fact, disciples, but all disciples are not apostles. And with the death of those 12, the apostolic age closed, and we don't formally recognize any apostles today. So they were ambassadors of the king. They were the ones sent out. Jesus chose these 12. He often would match them together in teams of two. And it's a good pattern for us to follow wherever possible to be in relationship in a, in a two-fold system. Peter and Andrew, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James and Simon the Zealot, Judas and the other Judas. There are a lot of interesting connections with these group of men. There are brothers, James and John, Peter and Andrew. There are business associates, Peter, James, and John. They were all fishermen who would have worked together. There were opposing political viewpoints that were present in this early gathering. Matthew, the Roman-friendly tax collector, and Simon, the Roman-hating zealot. One from the left, one from the right, and they were disciples and apostles together in the same construct People of opposing political views in fellowship in the church. Can I get an amen anywhere? Amen. And then there's, of course, the one who's going to betray Jesus as well. So he gathers these guys together. He, he tends to give them nicknames. James and John were the sons of thunder, which I always thought would be cool. You're being introduced at a major event. Now entering the sons of thunder, James and John. Simon called him Peter. Rock from a reed. Levi, some real history there, and he calls him Matthew. 
Peter and some of the other guys, he would have called actually on several occasions. It looks like Peter may have actually had maybe two previous encounters where Jesus would have identified him, but each time he went back to his nets and back to his fishing. There's finally a third time, and maybe he was overcome by his own sense and awareness of his own weakness and failings and sin. Because in Luke chapter 5, verse 8, the final time when Jesus comes to him and calls him to follow, it says, when Simon and Peter realized what had happened, a certain little miracle had occurred, um, he fell to his knees before Jesus and said, oh Lord, please leave me, I'm such a sinful man. The message version says that when he saw it, he fell to his knees and said, Master, leave, I'm a sinner and I can't handle this holiness, leave me to myself. There's such an awareness, and we think sometimes of these apostles as these esoteric beings that just kind of drift through life, but they were real men who were filled with doubts and failings and weaknesses and sin even. It wasn't their great aptitudes or the books that they had read or the organizations they had led. It was that they were willing to, to follow Jesus. They were willing to be taught by him. They were willing to be transformed by being in a relationship with him. When all these men from all these common sinful backgrounds, these rough backgrounds, you've got, you've got Roman collaborators. You've got Roman killers and haters here. You've got rough-necked fishermen, ignorant men, but after Jesus' death and resurrection, as they encounter the religious leaders at that time, the religious leaders took note. These men had been with Jesus. And it was in being with Jesus that we are transformed and made eligible for whatever calling we are being given. Peter particularly is just such a, a rough guy. He, he's got such moments of brilliance and such deep pits of failure. And even at the Last Supper, the communion that we're about to celebrate, he sits here and, and tells Jesus, I'm going to die for you. And, and Jesus says, would you really lay down your life for me? In John 13, very truly I tell you before the rooster crows, you're going to disown me three times. And sure enough, later that night in the courtyard with the braziers burning the charcoal that was there filling the air. He's asked three times if he knows him, and he, he starts off by, no, I don't know him, and then he begins to, to really deny, and then he begins to curse. No, I, what the, I don't know who he is. And then finally that third time, and the bird begins to crow, and he falls away in total bitterness and despair. He goes back to his nets even after the resurrection. He doesn't know what else to do. He goes back to his nets and, and Jesus encounters him again. He's on the shore and, and he doesn't recognize it's Jesus at first and there's again a little miracle occurs with some fish and then he realizes it's Jesus and he comes ashore and I had the opportunity a couple of years ago to be on the shore of Galilee and to look at a place that no, they think, they don't know, but it was a place where maybe Jesus or uh, uh, Peter came ashore and it, and it just grabbed me because as he comes ashore in that moment, Jesus has a little fire burning with charcoal. And as we've talked about it before, the aroma would have filled the air and it would have been taken right back. You know how odors take you right back to a moment. It would have taken him right back to that moment in the courtyard. And it's three times failure. And then in that moment on that shore of the water there, Jesus restores him three times until he's completely restored. He still doesn't get it totally perfect. Even later on, as he's continuing on, he's afraid of the Jewish uh, legalists and he's kind of trying to placate them and, and, and Peter has to call him out or Paul has to call him out rather. But from that point on, something firms up in him and he becomes someone who becomes a true follower of Christ, a disciple. When he says, I'm a sinful man, go away from me, Jesus' response is, fear not. 
Don't be fearful. One of the other, only other real opportunities we have of an individual call-out is for Matthew. His name originally was Levi. Luke chapter 5, verses 27 through 29. After, Jesus, after this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. Levi got up, left everything and followed him right then and there. This guy who would have been a tax collector, this guy who would have um, been the lowest, as we've said, of society that could have been of that time period. And Jesus renames him Matthew, which means gift of God. A guy who would have seen himself and been viewed by everyone as less than a gift by far. Jesus renames him and gives him a nickname. You know, you're, you're sons of thunder. You guys, you're Simon, you're, you're Peter and Levi. You don't see it yet, but you are a gift of God. I've often wondered, and this is just sheer speculation from my point, so indulge me in a moment of time. Matthew was a tax collector. Is it possible? It's possible. Is it possible that, that there would have been a time before he knew of Jesus at all that he would have maybe gone to the temple? He's, he's caught in, in what he's doing, he can't seem to get out of it, but he knows that he's wrong. He knows his guilt on this. Is it possible he would have gone to the temple and that he would have, at one point in time, sought God in broken repentance and beating on his chest while a Pharisee stood nearby? Is it possible that could have happened? If so, how incredibly glorious it would have been for Matthew to follow Jesus, only to have Jesus at some later time start to tell the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And, and, and Matthew would look up and realize, oh my goodness, he saw me. God saw me even in that moment. Jesus really is God. In that moment, he saw my brokenness. For Peter, his fears need to be allayed. For Matthew, it was simply a calling out. Follow me. And as they choose to follow Jesus, he begins to teach them. He begins to instruct them. In Mark chapter 9, verses 33 through 35, they come to Capernaum. And when he's in this house, he asks them at what point, what were you arguing about? So on the road up, they're hanging back there and they're having some kind of argument and discussion amongst themselves. And he hears it. And he says, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Now that was not uncommon for a Roman Greek-oriented society. Power was everything. You're supposed to reach for power. You're supposed to reach for attention. You're supposed to take hold of things. That's what Rome was about. And it was in stark contrast to the authority that Jesus talked about. Rome was all about power, just like today. But for Christians, power is not to be the avenue of our expression. We could take an entire month on this conversation alone right now. But power is not to be the avenue for the follower of Jesus Christ. Something must have been soaking into their heads because rather than sitting and saying, well, we're just saying, who's the greatest, you know? And talk, instead, they got silent. They knew that there was something wrong in that conversation even taking place around Jesus. So then the next line here is this. In verse 35, it says, sitting down. Now, why is that important? It's really important, actually, for this reason. Rabbis did not stand like we would today in teaching. When a rabbi was about to teach, 
he would stop. He would sit down, and they would gather on the ground around his feet, and he would teach his disciples. So Jesus is about to respond to their situation, not with a drive-by like, hey, guys, you know, you're not supposed to be doing that, or hey, if you're talking about who's the greatest, look at this guy, you know? He's not doing any of that. Instead, he stops, sits down to indicate, okay, we're going to take a moment on this. Let's have a teaching. He calls him and said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. A CEO mindset does not line up with this. The concept that he's offering here was radical not only for its time period, but it is still radical today that we are supposed to serve one another. A friend of mine in a major organization um, was up for their regular review. And one of the things they were told uh, that was slowing down their advancement is that they were not um, promoting themselves enough. There wasn't enough of them pointing out to what they were doing and what they were achieving and, and listing all those things. Because that's how the world operates. And that same thing has now entered into the church in rampant self-promotion, boasting of ourselves. But Jesus said, that's not how you're supposed to operate. You're supposed to be a servant. We're supposed to approach things from a different way. In the Last Supper that they're gathered, at one point in time, he washes their feet. And then in John 13, he goes on and says, you call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I've done for you. None of us should ever in this church ever be offended at being asked to do a simple task. There are, are, are numerous people in this church who do some of the dirtiest, simplest jobs, both in life but also around here at times, and they never draw attention to themselves, and they're never lifted up high. But they quietly, faithfully execute those things, and in doing so, follow the ways of Jesus. It wasn't just about servanthood that he taught them about. In Luke chapter 14, verses 27 and 32 through 32, he says, whoever does not bear his or her cross and come after me, he can't be my disciple. He can't be it. Not that it'll be different. He says he can't do that. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has, done enough to, done, has enough to finish it, lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him and saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. There are massive construction projects around this country that no one had enough money or vision or capital to complete, and they are monuments and memorials to hubris, pride, and foolishness. And he uses that example of construction saying, you have to bear your cross, you have to endure certain things, and there's a cost involved in this. And you, once you lay the foundation of faith, do you have enough to continue to build upon that? He continues on with another um, illustration, or what king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000, or else while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation, asks them for conditions of peace. The first one's a statement of construction. If you, if you accept Christ and you lay that foundation, are you prepared to pay the cost for what it'll do to build a life upon that? The next one's about warfare. Are you prepared to deal with the slings and arrows of that comes with following. 
Jesus Christ. Will we count the cost and bear the cross? We are Christians up until the time that we were offended. And especially if it's another Christian. Because after all, they broke the rules. And since they broke the rules of loving and being kind and putting me first, I now have full range to go completely medieval on them. Pagans will do that too because after all, they don't even know the rules half the time. But if we are followers of Christ, if we are disciples of him, if we are sitting here and saying there's a cost and a cross to bear, then when we are offended, even when the rules are broken and we are damaged in that, we don't use the same methods. We don't use the same tools. Less as we stare into the abyss and as the abyss stares back into us, we become the very monsters that we are striving to not destroy but to overcome with love and grace and transform. The question is, will we fall upward to this or downward to this? And so he chooses these 12 disciples that he transforms into apostles. He teaches them servant leadership. He teaches them sober consideration and acceptance of the cost. And then having called them out, having set them up, having established them and having walked with them for three years, he then releases them at his death and resurrection And so now we turn to, in these few moments left, the fate of those 12. After all, these are the men who, who more than anyone else has taken names after in Western civilization. They have paintings. They are saints. They are all these different things, but they're also deeply flawed human beings. But ones who chose to follow Christ, they counted that cost. And they bore that cross. And so Peter and Paul, both of them are martyred in Rome about 66 AD during the persecution under Emperor Nero. Paul, he's beheaded because he's a Roman citizen. You can't crucify him. It's against the law. But we're going to kill him anyway, so he's beheaded with a sword. Peter, however, is not a Roman citizen, so he's crucified. But because he's going to be crucified the same way as Christ, he says, that's just not appropriate for me to die the same way. I'm not worthy to die the same way as my Lord the guy who betrayed three times, the guy who had all these other failings but now steps up in the final moment of time, he's crucified upside down. Andrew, he goes to the land of what was called the man-eaters and what is now Soviet Union. Christians there claim him as the first to bring the gospel to their land. He also preached in Asia Minor in Turkey and Greece and he said there that he was crucified as well. Thomas, the twin, the doubter, <laughs> He ends up in Syria, and tradition has him preaching as far east as India, and I've got Indian friends who claim their heritage through him, that he got as far as there, where eventually he is pierced through with spears of four soldiers all at the same time. Philip ends up in Carthage, North Africa, where in the process of his teaching, a wife of a political entity, proconsul, becomes a Christian, and the proconsul is so upset by this and disturbed that he puts Philip to death. And Matthew, our tax collector, 
writer of a gospel. He ends up in Persia and Ethiopia, and some of the oldest reports say that he is stabbed to death in Ethiopia. Bartholomew has his skin flayed off his body and then beheaded. James, the one, has Herod cutting off his head. The other James is reported by Josephus to have been stoned and then clubbed to death. Simon the zealot, the guy who is willing to kill Romans, instead allows his own self to be killed after refusing to sacrifice to the sun god. Matthias, the apostle that replaces Judas, tradition sends him to Syria with Andrew to death by burning. And then there's John. John is the only one that dies of old age in exile. At the final supper, Jesus begins to talk to the twelve about his love for them and his final teaching to them. This is my commandment that you love one another and so deeply with this commandment engraved on their hearts that even in the persecution that followed, it is said that John, even in his old age when he had to be carried into a, a place where the believers would be at to teach or to speak, he would be saying over and over again, little children love one another. Little, little children love one another. Little, little children love one another. And you know how you get older and sometimes you just... You gotta love one another. You gotta love one another. Little children love one another. Hey, you. Oh, yeah. You love one another. And it got to be so repetitious that his disciples, weird at last, of the constant repetition of this, asked him why he was constantly saying the same thing. And his response supposedly was this because it is the commandment of the Lord and the observation of it alone, he said, is sufficient. And so when he gathered at that last supper, he says at one point in time in John 15, he says, greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. Greater love has this, to lay down their life for their friends. They would have gathered around that table, much like we're going to do in a little bit of time here, assuming you've considered the cost and are willing to bear the cross. Because you see, there's a time coming where you're not going to get points for being a Christian in this country. I don't know if you've been really paying attention, but there's a time coming and you need to determine why you are following. Whether you've counted the cost and whether it's actually soaked into your bone. It had to these 12 men who had walked with Christ. And so at that last supper, he says, greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. And then he goes on and says, I no longer call you servants. Because a servant doesn't know his master's business and said, I have called you friends. And we miss the impact of this so much. I'm the rabbi, you're the teacher. I'm the master, you're the servant. But he says, that's all changed as we've walked together. I no longer call you that. I call you friends. Jesus Christ calls you and me friend. The master of the universe, the creator of all life, calls you and me out of this world and calls us friends? Go away from me. I'm a sinful man. You don't know, Jesus, what I've done. 
Instead, he calls us out. He gives us new names. He teaches us and draws us close and gives us responsibilities, calls us to account, and he says, you're no longer a servant. He said, I have called you a friend. For everything that I learned from my father, I've made known to you. He shares his heart openly. A teacher, a leader, a person of political power doesn't do this. But Jesus did. And those friends of his, those friends of Jesus, they rose up to fulfill a destiny that transformed the world. They did it at a great cost as they carried the message of hope as Jesus' ambassadors to tell people that they too could overcome their sin, that they too could be made free. And they fell. One by one by one, they fell in the cause of the gospel with no fame in the moment of time. But they did not fall alone. As they walked with Christ, he walked with them. Even, even in the solitude of martyrdom. They did not fall alone. And neither do you or I or those of us that this day choose to count that cost and to follow him. As we prepare our hearts for communion for the time when they as brothers would have gathered together as we do that now as brothers and sisters, I encourage you to process deeply what it means to partake of this today. You don't have to be pure and sin-free. You do need to be forgiven and have accepted Christ. But if so, you can join us in this. So after three years of walking together, they gather in this upper room for what was to be a celebration. It's the Passover meal. It's the meal that celebrates the Jews' departure out of, out of uh, Egypt, the, the freedom that they would have had, the blood of an innocent lamb spread over a doorpost, the, the death angel passing away. It was a celebration. He washed their feet. He talked to them about love. There would have been joking and engagement. You silly sons of thunder. Peter, I see more and more you're becoming your name. And, and Matthew, you, you truly are a gift of God. At one point in time, he would have taken a piece of bread and, and things would have gotten quiet for a moment. He would have said, this is my body. And they would realize something else now is happening in this moment. This is my body broken for you. And he would break that bread as he blessed it. So Lord, this morning we come before you in thanksgiving. We know that it is by your brokenness that we are made heal and whole and that our sins are forgiven. And so Lord, this morning we give you thanks and we receive in your name. Amen, shall we together. And as the moment got increasingly somber, he would have taken a, a cup and he would have filled it with wine and he said, this is my blood 
shed for you. Don't ever forget this because without the shedding of blood, without a death, there is no remission of sin. There's no forgiveness. There's no cleansing. And shortly after this, I'm going to die. But you guys, you're going to carry it on. And there'll be a point in time when you also will give your life. But guys, what is going to come out of this is going to transform the world. It will change everything. And wherever you go, know, know that you're my friends, that I do not forsake you, and don't ever forget this night. And so now, we as believers, 2,000 years later, gather in this place in the midst of a raging pandemic. But we have the assurance of his forgiveness and grace and provision even now. And so, Lord, we come before you in thanksgiving. And, Lord, we pray that we could become as worthy as those original disciples, Lord God. We give you thanks in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Shall we partake? This may be a platform, but it will never be a stage. And we are not performers. And you are not an audience. You are a congregation of people called out by God. And while we may not be apostles, all of us are called to count the cost, bear the cross, and be disciples. I challenge you on this this morning. In a world that's getting increasingly antagonistic to these things and where the cost is going to get higher, that you consider this deeply. Father, I thank you for brothers and sisters. I thank you for the various gifts, not just ones of leadership, but the creative expressions that are throughout this body. And I pray, Lord, this morning for those that are slightly faltering that you would encourage them and come alongside them, that they'd feel your strength and the encouragement of your Holy Spirit and that you continue to guide us as a congregation to hold fast in this time of trial and struggle. Then doing so, Lord, we'd come through all the stronger for it. We thank you for it is by your grace that we stand. And I pray as people encounter us that somewhere, somehow, they would realize that we've been with you. Guide us in this, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.